0: The preaching of God's Word is found in Luke chapter 21, verses 34 through 36. Luke 21, 34 through 36. You'll remember that last we were together with this book before us, we had the testimony of that last and great day. Of course, there was included in Christ's words things regarding the destruction of Jerusalem, but likewise, there was the anticipation of that most solemn of days that shall come upon the face of the earth when Christ returns. Well, though he has been teacher to instruct, he is now exhorter, as it were, to challenge us, to exhort and encourage us unto the right practice that flows from these truths. Here then the Word of God, Luke 21 through And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth, watch ye therefore, and pray always, that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. These three verses for our consideration. Christ in His teaching is ever faithful to instruct, and yet He's also ever faithful to show us and to apply to us these truths and how they are to impact and transform our lives. He's not content to leave the people with right notions of truth, but rather would cause us to see how those right notions are to challenge and transform the way that we live. So notice how all of this began. It started from an observation of His disciples. Verse 5, Some spake of the temple how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts so he hears them, pointing this out to the, himself. and he then from that goes to instruct and he warns them of the coming destruction of Jerusalem, and from that leans into the greater destruction that should come upon all the earth. So from a casual observation, Christ uses that to do much good speaking about important things. Brethren, this is instructive for us. If we are Christians, we should be learning of the Master how to take casual things and to invest spiritually for the good of souls about heavenly things. So he takes this observation which leads to a question, when shall these things be? And he sets forth the solemn truths of the destruction of Jerusalem, the times of the Gentiles, a season of... Persecution and leads to consider the last day. But now, not content to have set forth the truth, as it were, in its bare form, he then shows how this is to impact the lives of his people. So he concludes all with an appeal. And this is common throughout the scriptures. His disciples do the same. You think of the structure of Romans, how from Romans 1 to roughly chapter 11, it's preeminently doctrine. This is this truth, this is what this means, this is how this relates to that, and all of these different things. Every once in a while there's a moment of application, but from chapter 12 onward, it's heavily weighted toward applying the truth that's been set forth. The same as in the book of Ephesians, as you can look and see the same. And though it's not always so evident of first this, then that, It's true throughout the Scriptures. Sometimes it's first the practice, and then the practice is shown to be founded upon a truth. The point of all of this is to show that when the Scriptures think of right doctrine, when they think of what we call theology, it's never an end in itself. Doctrine is not an end in itself. Theology, as far as our understanding of doctrinal truths, is not an end in itself. It is meant to lead us in the way everlasting. So, when we hear our forefathers speak of what theology is, they speak of it as, in various ways, you know, heavenly doctrine unto heavenly practice. So, it's instruction, training in righteousness. Theology is the teaching of God regarding Christ unto a life of godliness. And they're doing nothing but representing the thrust of the Scriptures. You can see it in the Ten Commandments. It challenged the children last time to commit to memory the preface of the Ten Commandments. And the importance of that is this. It starts with the statement of truth. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the house, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then it goes into practice. And this is seen again and again throughout the Scriptures. It is clearly seen and the Master's teaching as well. So notice, he exhorts verse 34. All of these truths, he says, take heed to what? To yourselves. He doesn't just say take heed to your understanding. It's true, we ought to make sure that our thoughts are in accordance with Christ's teachings, but he's rather addressing the whole of what we are. And you can see this when he says, lest at any time your hearts. And so he's addressing the whole man. So he's not just saying, listen, make sure your doctrinal I's are dotted and T's crossed. Surely that's true. We ought to be precise in our understanding. And as many gifts as he may give us, we're to exercise them to search the Scriptures and to bring our own understanding under them. And yet what Christ is exhorting us is to see what practice is to follow the understanding of His Word. Take heed to yourselves. Notice the warning is lest at any time. Notice the anticipation. Not just today, as this is soberly before you, and the stones which you pointed out and said, look how magnificent these buildings are. And for the moment, you're overwhelmed to think That one day these stones will be toppled and the children who run around in the streets will be taken away, some of them killed, and these things, while you're right now sobered, surely you should take heed to yourselves. But he says at any time, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, when things are well, when health is strong, when family is abundant, when riches are multiplying, take heed to yourselves then... Is there not likewise in this a lasting call to the church in all ages? Well, what is it we're to be mindful of? That we be not overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life. Overcharged has to do with our hearts being weighed down. And so there's a burden, a weight put upon us. What by? Surfeiting, this word which is somewhat times translated by others, dissipated. It has to do with the effects of overindulgence. We think of the second statement and drunkenness, it's related to that. that, But it seems to be perhaps less intense than the drunkenness. So in some sense, the enjoyment of carnal pleasures, but at a lesser degree. And then drunkenness, the reckless abandonment to all the heart being given over to these things. So, in one sense, he says, Listen, you need to be watchful lest your heart be given to carnal pleasures, sinful, forbidden things. But notice he doesn't leave it there. He says, And cares of this life. Now, he's already addressed this, hasn't he? When he says, Take no thought what you will eat or drink or wherewithal you shall be clothed. What are those? There's nothing in and of those things themselves that is sinful. We need to eat. We need to have food. We need to drink. We need to have water and other refreshments. We need to protect our bodies. We need clothing. But he says, take no thought of it. So the cares of this life is not addressing the explicitly sinful things like overindulgence in food and alcohol and overindulgence in Uh, other things that any participation in would be sinful, but he says, you need to watch over your heart that the necessary things of this life don't weigh your heart down. What a sober reminder that is. And think of the relation, this life is going to end. So what's he saying? So don't let this life be your focus. Don't let the cares of this life, don't let the sinful pleasures of this life, don't let the necessary things of this life be your focus in this life. Because this life is going to end dramatically and indeed fully. He says with the warning that that day come upon you, so that day come upon you unawares. Isn't it interesting how Paul or Peter says, rather Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 says that the Lord will come as a thief in the night, but this should not overtake you because you know the day is coming. That's what Christ is saying. You know this day is coming. So your every breath, your every motion should be lived out in light of this truth. So he says again, it will come upon the whole face of the earth verse 35. Therefore watch And pray always. Not just on the Lord's Day. Not just at midweek prayer meeting. Not just in family worship. Not just in secret devotion. But the whole of your existence as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be a continual watchfulness lest these things creep in, crowd out, and weigh down your heart with things that are unnecessary in the ultimate Perspective. And all of this is because of that last great day. In other words, what Christ is saying is that the certainty of the last and dreadful day that He has set forth calls for the constant preparation and watchfulness of that last day so long as we live. You can think of it this way if there was a group of soldiers that were told by their commanding officer, You need to be ready at every moment to go into battle. And then days pass and there's a reminder given and days pass and then finally the alarm sounds and it's time to go. And some had, as it were, become casually indifferent to those things. Well, so many days have passed. It's not really going to come to us and so on. They wouldn't be commended. They would be reproved and reprimanded for their casting off of their commander's call and word. So it is for Christians. Though days pass, though weeks pass, though months and years pass in our lives, though hundreds of years pass in the existence of the church, yet the church is still called every day to be watchful and praying because there's a time coming when everyone here is going to stand face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. That fact is to govern everything we do, as we'll see. So consider then three things from this text. Firstly, the reasons to prepare. Secondly, the way to prepare. And then some applications that follow. The reason, to, reasons to prepare. The way to prepare. And then, A few applications. Firstly, then, the reasons to prepare. Christ identifies two things. He identifies that one reason to prepare is that there are temptations that come upon all men. What do the temptations do? Well, he likens them in one sense to a snare. Right? You see that in verse 35, which elsewhere in Scripture says the same. And so there are temptations which appeal to us for our affections, for our time and attention, for our diligence and so on, and they present attractive things to us, but they present the bait and they hide the snare. Children, some of you have been fishing, and you can think of both you know, natural bait and artificial lures. They're purposed to attract, but to hide the danger. And so there are people who spend literally hundreds and thousands of dollars to have the thinnest yet strongest line so that fish would not see anything attached to this. They take great care in studying how is it that the lure can imitate live bait, live fish and other such that prey uh, would be preyed upon. How can we get so close to it That a creature who has lived 10 years or so would know no difference and would be, as it were, brought to engulf and embrace that which will be their undoing. Well, this is what temptation does. Temptation presents all of the beautiful attractiveness, right? Remember the first temptation in Genesis chapter 3. Satan points out all of the loveliness. He denies the injury. And Eve takes notice and says, look, it's good for food. It's able to make one wise. It's pleasant. And she takes it. What happened? Satan presented the bait with great skill. He denied the danger with great deception. Eve in her folly and deception took it, ate it, and then she realized she had been deceived. Right? Well, this is what happens every time temptations come. What are the temptations here? They are this crowding of our hearts, this weighing of them down by the pleasures of sin and by the cares of this life. Brethren, we know some, and some of us must confess to have participated in explicitly sinful pleasures with smiles on our faces. Why? Because all that we saw was the seeming delight and satisfaction of our lusts being fulfilled. And there are some in the church, many times young people who grow up, and they think to themselves, you know, mom and dad, the pastor and elders, they're always saying don't do this, don't do that. But I see smiles on the faces of others in my neighborhood of people in my school, of others on the television, and so on. I see them doing the very things not only that my parents say don't do, the pastor says don't do, but the Bible says don't do. And what I see is a bunch of people smiling, laughing, having fun. What you need to realize is that what you're seeing are captured souls dangling on the hook Thinking themselves at liberty when they're truly caught and unable of themselves to be freed from the bondage. They have given themselves to the temptation, and such is their love of sin that they delight in sin, and they call it good, and they call what is good evil. This is a common temptation. But brethren, Christ doesn't just say, listen... Be careful unless your heart become overwhelmed with sinful pleasures. He also identifies lawful concerns. The cares of this world. What are those things? What are my children going to eat? How are my children going to learn? How am I going to make the bills get paid? How am I going to provide for my household? How am I going to be sure that I get the health I need? How am I going to be sure that I can get food and drink and clothing? These are the cares of this life. So on the one hand, he's saying you need to be watchful because it's a common snare to set forth the pleasures of sin and to say this is good, come after that. But he says you also have to be watchful Because there's a stronger appeal, don't you realize, to say, look what you need. Don't you need food? Don't you need drink? Don't you need clothing? Don't you need a car? Don't you need a house? Don't you need to pay your bills? Don't you need to train your children? Don't you need to order your home? Don't you need to do this, that, and the other thing? Those are the cares of this life. Now, none of those in themselves is sinful. But all of them, every last one of them, can become sinful when they take a place in our thoughts, affections, schedules, and lives, families, churches, and every other relationship known to us that they ought not to hold. When they become the priority and crowd out other things. Let me give you some examples. Food and rest. They're lawful. They're good. They're blessings of the Lord. But if those things crowd out prayer, worship, and preparing for heaven, they've become abused. School, recreation, needful. Work, needful, lawful. We must be engaged in those appropriately. But if they crowd out our zeal for the Lord, and if they take more of our life then these other things, Christ says, you've succumbed to a common snare. Brethren, this is true in every generation. It is all the more true, not only in our generation, but in our culture, where we have almost unending access to the supplies of the things that make our lives necessarily more beneficial, helpful, and easy, so we have this ability, that ability. We can schedule this, that, and the other thing. We have schooling, homeschooling. We have work and options. We can do this and that and the other thing. We can be involved in this recreation. We have unending access to modes of health and food and diet and other such things. All of which are right to give ourselves some attention to. None of which will do any good for your soul For eternity. What diet you follow does nothing for your soul. It may be needed for your body. How much sleep you get in and of itself is not the main focus. What job you get, how much money you earn, all of that, Christ says, can become an utter distraction to the main thing. And so good things, Christ says, can indeed become something when abused and misused that is a distraction. And so Christ says because that's common, you need to approach every day with your eyes wide open. You need to look and to realize that even good and lawful things that I have to give myself to, if unattended to, can become a domineering thing in my life and cause me to walk astray. Which then the second reason is These common temptations can lead to a fatal error. Notice verse 35, "...as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth." What is it? It's that day. "...so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth." Satan is a master, but let's be clear, our hearts are most willingly entertained by him to follow after things so that our minds become less clear about the last great day. And we become more focused on the passing days of our life. And so we think, you know, what house am I going to live in? What school are my children going to go to? What food am I going to eat? What job am I going to get? Who am I going to marry? How many children might I have? What am I going to do when this happens? When my parents die, what then? When, if, if this trial comes, what then? All of those are right to consider prayerfully. All of those are right to approach with submission to God and seeking His blessing. But all of those also can become so demanding in our lives that subtly what happens is the whole of our soul's attention goes to the passing temporal realities of this life and neglects the unending reality of what comes at the last day. This is summed up by Christ. You remember the rich man and Lazarus, right? The rich man has everything that one could have in this life and has stuff to last him and generations to come. We would say he has generational wealth. So everything that one could have in this life is given to this rich man. Lazarus is a poor man, a beggar. His wounds are licked by dogs. And yet on the last breath that they take, what happens? The rich man finds himself in misery and Lazarus finds himself in glory. Think of that for a moment. They now lastingly, unalterably exist in two very different places. So whereas the rich man had all the blessings of this life and Lazarus had none, the last day would show that Lazarus has now all of the blessings of everlasting life and the rich man only has unending misery. That's the fatal error. That we take the things that are good in this life and as it were, make them the main thing. Clearly, Christ commends and His Word commends that we work hard, that we pray, that we give to our families, and as the Lord gives us wealth, that we rejoice and give thanks, but give to others. But He never commends, He never condones these things dominating our lives. Because when they dominate and overcharge our hearts, They weigh us down. Think of that language. Overcharge. Weighing us down so that we only look at the lowest thing. And we fail to look at the highest thing. Christ is calling us to look at the highest thing. Whatever our outward estate, whether we're healthy or ill, whether we're rich or poor, He's saying there is a greater thing with which you should be consumed. So, The Reasons to prepare, common temptations, and a fatal error. Secondly, the way to prepare. There is an implicit one in the text, and then there is an explicit one. The implicit one in the text, as we'll show, is that the way to prepare is by faith in Christ. How is that present in the text implicitly? Well, certainly it's throughout the Scriptures. We could easily show that. But notice... Christ is telling them of things they don't see, isn't He? He's telling them of things no one has experienced. He's telling this generation, you know what? The stones that you see are going to be torn down. The buildings which are so magnificent are going to be burned down. The children playing in the streets are going to be taken away. All of what you're seeing right now by sight, you need to take my word for it, it's going to be upended the beauty of these things, the glory of these things will become nothing but waste. So we're to trust Him. But He's also foretelling the last day, when that day comes. And so what's He saying? He says if we're to prepare, we need to trust what Christ is saying. And here's something for us to consider. What do you trust more? Do you trust your bills... Or do you trust the Bible? Do you trust what's coming to you tomorrow on your schedule? Or do you trust what's on God's schedule of the last day? Which is more governing of your life? Now, of course, we look at our bills and we have responsibility to pay them. We look at our family and we have responsibility to feed them. But, what Christ is getting at is though those things are true, it never is to permit your heart being overburdened by them. Why so? Because Christ earlier in this very Gospel has said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And what? All these things shall be added unto you. See the point? Christ is saying, trust Me on two counts. One, these things are going to happen. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And so when you see these initial signs, you need to flee Jerusalem. But likewise, you need to trust Me. This world is going to be destroyed. And so you need to use this world in preparation of the next. And when your heart becomes concerned with the affairs of this life, you need to trust Me. For I've said, as you seek Me first... All these things will be provided to you. So in other words, if ever we're to prepare for that last great day, it demands first and foremost that we take Christ's word as true. Someone says, but my fears are. Well, it's not that we don't have fears, but the question is what do we do with those fears, right? If we have faith, we take the fears to our Lord. And we say, here's what you've promised. Here's what I'm worried about. Would you take your promises and tend to my heart? Heal its concerns. Strengthen my faith. Lord, I do believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Right? So we're coming to Him by faith, for faith. By grace, for grace. So if ever we're to see our lives transformed in the way that He's saying... It will only be as we acknowledge that Christ is true, that what He says is true, and what He says is worthy of our lives being conformed to. So faith is throughout this section. Certainly we could add to that because we know as Christ teaches elsewhere that the only way that any of us should be able to stand on that last great day is having been forgiven by Him who is the Savior of sinners. So faith is throughout in our preparing for that day. But notice the thing that He forces upon our attention with great earnestness is not only faith, but faith which leads to watchfulness. Notice twice it's stated in different ways. Verse 34, "...take heed to yourselves." And verse 36, Watch ye therefore, and pray always. So there is to be a watchfulness, notice, preeminently over your own life. Now, you know what we love to do? We love to hear that and say, well, if so-and-so would get their act together, their life would be better. Right? You know, if that Christian over there would really take this to heart, then their life would be transformed. But what's astonishing is Christ says to each one, You must take heed for yourself. You must take this to heart for you. So in other words, the first thing that he's calling each of us individually to do is to say, my life, my life must be under watch and care in light of that day. And there's tremendous reason for that. Because others will have to answer for their lives. But you will have to answer for your life. It's true, as parents, we have to answer for how we trained up our children, as church members, how we served, and so on. But we will not have to answer for the sins of others, right? We will have to answer for our thoughts, our words, our affections, our allegiance, our actions. And so Christ is saying to each of us, the first responsibility you have in light of that last day is that you would take inventory of yourself. That you would consider, well, how is it with me? Am I having my life brought into conformity to a heavenly and holy watchfulness in preparing for that? Well, how does one do this? If we're to watch, take heed to ourselves, Christ then gives us help lest at any time your heart, your inward man. So surely we need to take consideration of our actions, our speech, and our uh, behavior. But he's saying if you're going to watch, you actually have to watch the depths of your soul. Because that's where it all begins. Surely we can say, as John Bunyan talked of in his book, Holy War, We could talk about the eye gate of our soul, the ear gate of our soul, the things we see and the things we hear, that these are the ways of entrance into our thoughts and desires. And yet, we have to admit this, if there was nothing in us that would latch on to temptation, nothing we would see or hear would ever draw us to sin. And so this is why Christ is saying, watch over your hearts. Proverbs tells us in chapter 4, keep your heart with all diligence. Guard is the idea. So children, you hear the word keep, and you think of, well, I'm holding on to this. And there's truth to that in the Hebrew word. But the word keep is actually the word guard, protect. And so castles would have a keep. Oftentimes it was where they would store treasures or prisoners, things they didn't want to get out, things they didn't want others to come and take, they would put in the keep, the place of protection. And Proverbs chapter 4 is saying that's what you need to do with your heart. That you don't let things get in it that shouldn't be, and that you don't let it go after things that shouldn't go after. And so Christ is saying you're to take heed to yourselves lest your hearts, your desires, become overwhelmed. So in other words, words, we have to watch over our desires. You know what that demands? It demands solitude, and self-examination. You can't do this in the volume up era that we live in. You can't do this with your smartphone out, checking apps, going through pictures, going through email. You need to set all of that aside if ever you're going to keep yourselves. It's astonishing. You read books, literature, and you read of people who get captured and then the way they get out is by distracting the guards who ought to be attentive to what's kept, they get distracted somehow, then the uh, prisoners get out. That's true in the Scriptures even. Well, you need to be the guard that is distracted by nothing. You need to be the one that says, I'm setting all distractions aside so that I can watch over my heart. That's why in the Hebrew, Proverbs 4, it says keep your heart with all keeping. With all guarding, which our English has translated the idea, but the Hebrew is more forceful Keep it with all keeping, all attention, all focus. Take heed to yourselves. That's at any time your hearts be overcharged with these things. Watchfulness. In other words, not only over your words and actions, but over your loves, your affections, your desires. You can see this by the outward words and actions. You can see this by your use of time and priorities. You can see this by all of those things. But all of those have to be so many rays of light shining upon what is my heart wanting? You know, a good way to ask yourself that is this. What do I fear most in this life? Because that will reveal where your strongest affection is. Let me give you an example. All of us, I trust, fear pain. Physical pain. We read the stories of martyrs and we wonder at the Lord's ability to strengthen them in the midst of torture. And we say, Phew, I don't know if I could do that. What would happen in that moment? The scriptures tell us the key they loved not their lives unto death, they feared something more than pain, they feared the dishonor of God. And see, you see what happens is when we examine ourselves and we say, oh, I find fear of pain, that's not, oh, I'm sinning. We ask ourselves, but what do I fear more? Do I fear more pain? Or do I fear more dishonoring God? Oh, I fear that my children might not like me. Well, do I fear that more? Or do, do I fear dishonoring God more? I fear that I might not be able to pay the bills. Do I fear that more more? Or do I fear honoring God more? You see, these are the ways that we can examine by discovering our fears. What do I fear most? Do I fear the miseries of this life the most? Or or do I fear dishonoring God more than I fear the sufferings of this life? Do I fear poverty more than I fear dishonoring God? Do I fear loss of friends more than I fear loss of fellowship with God. Do I fear anything in this world, the loss of good things, more than I fear the loss of the enjoyment of God? That helps us see where our heart's allegiance is. Of course, it's certainly the case that we should be concerned about physical needs, paying bills, feeding children, school, Recreation, sleep, diet, all of those things. But all of those things take not only a second place, but as it were, a last place to the main thing of knowing the Lord and following Him. We do this as we watch over ourselves, our hearts particularly, but we also do so as we watch over and against prioritizing the temporal. This life is important. This life has good things in the Lord's mercies. But none none of the things in this life are to be compared with the honoring of God's name and the life to come. This life is subordinate to, second to, the life that's coming but most in the world, as Christ is making the point, live as if this life is what matters and that life is sort of a dreamy, airy, wishful thing. Christ is saying, here's the fact, the last day is coming. Such a day as the world has never seen. The dreadful scene of that day will then show that it was an utter waste every single time we prioritized anything howsoever good in this life over and above Christ's honor and the life to come so we need to watch over what is my heart prioritizing sometimes i face the temptation i'm sure as many of you do i've got so much going on you know i'm just going to sort of skip my bible reading and i'm going to get on to the things that i need to get on to isn't that the way we think I'm going to skip by time of prayer and i got to get to cooking a meal. I'm going to get, skip by you know, time of fellowship with Christ because I need to get to work. I'm going to skip by this because I need to. Those are the ways we talk. If not talk, those are the ways we think. But we've got it backwards. Those things are needful for this life and by Christ's calling, we need to order our lives to fulfill them. But the world coming is far more real than this life. And so our lives now are to be ordered for it. How do we get there? Christ tells us as well. By remembering that day. Verse 34, So that day. Children, you love those days of celebration. You have birthdays. You have time with family, a vacation to go. It gets on the calendar. Mom and dad talk about it. Brothers and sisters talk about it. You get, as it were, encouraged for it. It's on the calendar. It's coming. And your life begins to be ordered toward it. And so eventually that time comes and you're packing and you're excited. Mom, what do I need to pack? What do I need to bring? Who are we going to see? What are we going to do? What's the schedule? What's going on? How long are we going to be there? Oh, it's going to be too short. You know, I want to stay there. All these things start to build up this affection for that coming day. And yet, every time you mark something on your calendar, it should have an asterisk over it saying, if the Lord will. You don't know if your birthday's coming, you don't know if the vacation's coming. You don't know if your wedding day is coming. You don't know if your anniversary is coming. You don't know if this is coming on your calendar. But there is one day that God has marked on His calendar that every one of us will experience. Every single one, even if it's not on our calendar. And it's the day when Christ will return. And Christ is saying, if you want to live in light of that day, you need to see it marked over the whole of your calendar. Remember, that day. September 3rd, 2023, remember that day. September 4th, 2023, remember that day. Every day you wake up, as you wake up, your eyes open, you say, thank you, God, for a new day. You need to say, consciously and deliberately, remind me of that day that's going to come. When you prepare and you're going through your files, you're getting ready, searching your calendar, getting ready to go to work, getting ready to care for the kids, going to school, teaching children, whatever it is you're doing, you need to consciously keep before you, help me to do this in light of the last day. Because that day is the day of reckoning. Everything that you've said, everything that you've done, everything that you've desired, everything that you failed to say, everything you failed to do, will be brought for a full reckoning on that day. It's not some overzealous concern. It is the fact of that day and what it means that Christ implores us then to say, Watch, therefore, and pray always. All of us struggle with prayer. But we should not say that with comfort to ourselves. We should say that upbraiding ourselves. Sometimes people use sin and the commonality of sin as if it's an excuse, right? They say things like this Well, you know, everyone, you know, I've lost my temper, I've gotten angry, I've sinned in my speech, but everyone sins and gets angry. That's not an excuse, that's not a comfort. That should bring us low. You know, I don't pray as much as I ought to. I don't pray as fervently as I ought to. I stumble and struggle. But everyone struggles and stumbles. That shouldn't bring us comfort. That should bring us low to cry out, God, revive your cause. Make us a people of faith and prayer. Because everywhere you look in the Scriptures, prayer is never minimized. It's never set aside and said, well, you know, pray when you want to. If you get to it, if you don't, it's okay. You know, don't worry about it. But think of this, you know, here Christ says, pray always. Elsewhere we're told, pray without ceasing. We're told, give thanks for all things, give thanks in all things, rejoice evermore. The constant drumbeat of God's word is our souls are to be engaged spiritually at all times seeking the Lord. Now, we have to admit this doesn't mean. That at school, as I'm doing my math facts and so on, that I'm saying, well, I can't do math facts. I need to pray. Or as a mother, as I'm preparing meal or teaching my children and so on, that I say, well, I can't do this because i got to read my Bible. No. It means that this is leavened through the whole. It means that before and during, I'm fellowshiping Christ. Help me. I need help for patience with my children. I need wisdom to know what to say. You know, I'm struggling with this concept. You're the one who's made all things. Help me to give diligence to understand and learn and memorize and be able to uh, take in this difficult learning. I'm at work. I'm in a difficult relationship. Give me wisdom that I may honor Your name. I have a high and heavy project. Give me diligence and favor that I may do this preeminently to Your glory, that I would not be guilty of compromising Your name and Your law and Your Word, but that my diligence would be, as it were, a testimony of the great glory of Your name. You see, the whole of life is thus transformed because of God's grace and the light of that last day. Well, let us close with a few applications. We've noted in order to do this, a preeminent thing that you and I need to do is consciously and deliberately in a daily fashion set this day before you. Put this day deliberately before you. Some of you have calendars. And with the advent of all the technology and reminders you can do, it is easy to take steps to do this. If you have a marker board on the top of your calendar, right, remember the last day. If you have a smartphone, put a reminder, a daily alarm that comes off and says, remember the last day. Now, none of that's necessary in the strictest way, but you can see how many ways and avenues there are to fill our minds with reminders that this day that we now live in is moving toward a last day in which we'll give an account. But here's another thing to remember. You should remember that believers who trust in Christ and who give evidence of that by their holy lives, as Jesus Himself says, will be accounted worthy to escape all these things, verse 36, that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Here's something for you consciously to remember. It's not just a generic last day, it's not just the wonder of the last day. But believers who have trusted in Christ and by his grace have ordered their lives will one day stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ himself will look in the eye of the believer and will say, Well done. The world doesn't say that. Many times, our lusts deny it. And sometimes, even members in the church reprove us. But here's the idea. Remember, we're to trust Christ who tells us these things. We're also to trust Him when He says elsewhere. That on that day, Christ is going to say to His people, well done. And then He's going to say, enter in to the paradise of God. Enter into this rest. Enter into this heaven. Enter into this which I have prepared for you. He's going to welcome you personally into the glory of heaven. Now, you can understand how this helps us. Because when we're concerned about afflictions, when we're concerned about these trials, when we're tempted unto sinful pleasures and so on, all of that is taken from our mind and thrown out the door. But when we bring that back in, We're presenting ourselves with the correction to the aggrandizement of this world in the world's estimation. We say the world and the best it can do is so small, but the glory of what heaven is looms large. Why would I sell my everlasting joy for this petty, carnal, worldly concern? Do you remember what's said of Esau? So, it's said of him in Hebrews with reference to what takes place in Genesis that he sold his birthright, this promise given to him for a morsel of food. A morsel. Children, think of that. Would you take a little piece of candy and say, I'd rather have that piece of candy than heaven. No one would say that. No one would say in their right mind, give me a piece of candy so that I can lose out on heaven. Okay, what if I give you ten bags of that candy? Then would you say, I don't want heaven. I don't want Christ. You say, well, I mean, that's more, but no. what are ten bags of candy to heaven? Okay, and then I come to you and say, well, what if I give you a lifetime supply of your favorite candy, however much you want, would you rather have that than the everlasting joy and glory of heaven? And you say, "Well, that's amazing. I, I don't know how that could happen." But no, because that ends. You know, if I live ninety years, what have I gained but lifetime supply of candy? And what am I missing out but the everlasting reality of heaven? But here's the fact: every pleasure in this world is like this offer. You want pleasure for a lifetime? I'll give it to you, says the world. never tells you that it will take from you your everlasting pleasure. You want friends? I'll give you friends. You want a happy family? I'll give you a happy family. You want wealth? I'll give you wealth. You want health? I'll give you health. If you give yourself to those things, the world says you can have it. Satan offers it. All these things come. But it never tells us of the last day. Christ comes and says, remember the last day. And then order your life to it. Here's the final word to you, believer. Christ says, of course, if you would be My disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Me. These are true words. But He also elsewhere says that the one who follows Me shall enjoy everlasting life. Believer, remind yourself of this, that what losses you suffer in this world for Christ are not to be compared to the glory that He has reserved in heaven for you. And as you remember that, then you'll see why it's not only wise and right, but good for you to watch and pray always. Would you stand with me for prayer?